0: Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is David Hepworth, who joins me to discuss his latest book, Overpaid, Oversexed and Over There, which deals with the British invasion, the Beatles spearheaded in 1964 and the continuing cultural conversation between Britain and America. David Hetworth has been writing about music since the 70s and was involved in the launches of Smash Hits, Q and the Word magazines. David's book looks at the cultural revolution that the Beatles launched when they landed in the USA and what made the richest, most powerful nation on Earth try and emulate the manners and modes of provincial Britain. David Hetworth, hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. We're here to talk about... Overpaid, oversexed, and Over There, How a Few Skinny Brits with Bad Teeth Rocked America. Um, you've taken on some quite big subjects with your recent run of books, The Rise and Fall of the star, The History of the LP. What attracted you to cover the British Invasion?
1: Well, I suppose, you know, the, the, the glib thing I always say about all my books is that most books of rock history are like most books of Second World War history. They're written by people who weren't there. Whereas I try and write about stuff where I kind of was there. You know, I, I remember it. So I suppose you get the benefits of, of a kind of research-oriented approach to the subject and also some personal experience of how it felt. And what appealed to me about it is I think it was, it was the great story of my teenage, teenage years and 20s, really, that uh, suddenly British bands went to America notably the beatles but loads of others and suddenly became many of them became very big in america and still are big in america whether they actually exist or not it sort of doesn't matter and the story of popular music from these islands ever since has been bands and acts but particularly bands. Wanting to follow in the footsteps of what the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Who and a few others did. And it's still an incredibly powerful pull on people, I think. And uh, it also shaped a lot of the certainly shaped a lot of the American perception of the British I think what worked and what didn't work tells us a lot about Britishness at the same time or Englishness, which is
0: probably more to the point in these cases. So that's why I wanted to do it. So you you talk about a number of factors that were in and out of the Beatles control that led to that helped them to have this cataclysmic impact across American popular culture. Tell us a little bit about the these factors. Was there one that you think was the most important that led to this huge success the Beatles had?
1: Well, I think there's, lo- there's obviously loads of factors. I, I do think in terms of timing, the fact that when they arrived in America in February 1964, it was just two months after the death of, after the assassination of JFK, which was... And I'm of that generation who really can remember where they were when they heard about JFK's death. It was Friday. It was a Friday evening uh, here. It was the first instant news event of my lifetime. Uh, I don't think anything had happened before where, uh, where you knew what had occurred halfway around, around the world, quarter of an hour after it had occurred, which is really what happened. So... JFK was was shot in, in Dallas and w- was buried a few days later in, in, in November um, 1963, and the, uh, the TV coverage of the funeral was uh, the biggest TV event there had ever been until the Beatles, you know, arrived in America very soon afterwards, you know. So I do think there was a certain... There was a certain preparedness for big events. And there was also the great kind of explosion of happiness after the period of, of, of national and international mourning that had uh, been occasioned by, by the death of, uh, of Kennedy. So, the, so that was kind of a background factor. There's loads of things in there. You know, there's the, the fact that interests me is, is that it was, uh, they, the Beatles came in at the top. They didn't come in at the bottom and work their way up. You know, they arrived as conquering heroes, which is just absolutely extraordinary when you think about it. You know, like three months before, they'd hardly been known at all. And that the record company in America, Capital, who previously had had no interest in doing anything with them at all because they sort of didn't want to be prove wrong i suppose the ultimate case of not invented here syndrome that you could ever find in business but anyway they changed at the last minute yes we do we'll launch the beatles and they spent a fortune on hyping the beatles on making sure that every american teenager knew that the beatles were arriving and that, that was going to be very very exciting uh, and they were also intriguingly to me that they had the kind of old show business establishment on their side. It wasn't the youngsters who made the Beatles. It was being like Ed Sullivan. You know? it, was, uh, it was Walter Cronkite knew about the Beatles. You know, it, was, it was hard-bitten old bureau chiefs in, uh, in, in London. You know, where, and in those days, all the American media organizations had London officers. And they were all looking at, at the Beatles all the time, thinking this is a phenomenon in the U.K., and uh, I think the way they were sold to Ed Sullivan was, you know, why should we bother about this group rather than all the other groups? Uh, and he was told the Queen likes them. And you can imagine how that's the kind of simple shorthand description of something that goes over really big in, in American uh, news circles. Mm. But then I think the 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 other thing, which only became apparent when they arrived, was that they were, they were just brilliant at dealing with, uh, with the media and the whole hoopla around them. I think the thing that made the Beatles make it in America was that they were, when they were singing and playing, there were the Beatles. And when they weren't singing and playing, they were also the Beatles as well. So they just gave great value in any context that you put them. You know, as was seen straight away at the um, JFK press reception when they arrived. And don't forget, JFK had only just recently been called JFK in the previous couple of weeks or something. There's also the fact that America didn't really have groups. And yeah, and it's quite interesting, if you look at the whole sweep of American popular music, the biggest acts in American popular music are solo acts, whether it's Prince or Michael Jackson, Bruce Springsteen, Elvis Presley, so forth. The biggest acts in Britain tend to be groups. And uh, obviously, that was particularly the case that time. And so there was something about the, the notion of a group that was very appealing to American teenagers and I think they were a kind of surrogate family for people, and also a surrogate gang, just a surrogate peer group. And you looked at them, and there's was the same here. But I think it really struck America was that they were this perfect little family that you just ached to join, but you never could, and you knew you never could. Underneath it all, and so that was very, very powerful to American youth particularly male American youth, you know, who, and then, you know, people like Tom Petty and Steve Van Zandt, Ruth Springsteen, all these people who are all the right age, you know, they all kind of remember, yeah, they were 14, 15 when this, when this had arrived and they all said the following day, you know, we've got to start a group, you just got to start a group, you know, so it's a of social organization There hasn't been before, you know, because America had instrumental groups, but they weren't groups like the beatles and they weren't groups like the rolling stones they weren't groups of personalities who formed a know into, into a giant personality but also had their individual personalities as well and i think that's a lot of the, that's a lot of the kind of english dna actually that we very very often overlook you know that the, the thing about groups and i suppose dave clark is a bit of an exception to this but most of these groups they would have said nobody was in charge. You know, if you'd asked the Beatles who the leader was, well, they wouldn't answer that question. But they knew it was John, but they wouldn't answer that question. You know, because so the, I think it's an English thing, although we're, you know, we clearly have, you know, a very well grooved class system, which we, we always talk about. But also, we have in this country a rich tradition of insubordination. You know, all our comedy is based on it. You know, so much of our literature is based on it. It's, it's bringing, you know, bringing the mighty down, exalting the lowly. That's that's what we do. We run up and down the social scale. And, uh, and the Beatles were all about that. They exemplified that, uh, you know, perfectly.
0: So you mentioned earlier about that you were, you bore witness to a lot of these, event, all of these events. I'm curious to find out, what do you remember about, the response in the uk to the beatles success in america was it something that the country suddenly had a huge kind of groundswell of pride about was it something that people weren't that interested in they were just concerned about the next record or whatever do you remember what it felt like to have this group having such success in america
1: it was a huge story on british media uh, and british media was nothing like as sophisticated or as multi-headed as it is nowadays but you know for instance i I think i'm right in saying that when they when the beatles came back from america you know after they spent two weeks there didn't they the bbc carried their arrival back at heathrow live by breaking into the saturday afternoon sports show which was grandstand (laughs) yeah that's pretty remarkable really when you consider in those days, the BBC had one outlet. That was BBC. they didn't even call it one; they just called it the BBC. You know, so that does give you an idea of what a big thing it was. And there was, there was considerable national pride uh, in the fact that they'd been so uh, welcomed and so much fuss had been made about them. And and when they arrived back, I think they, um, I think that very night, they did for their sins the Mike and Bernie Winters show on ITV. Uh, Mike and Bernie Winters never afflicted with the problem of being particularly funny. But anyway, they opened with a shot of, of the Beatles um, supposedly arriving back in customs where Mike and Bernie played customs men. And, and the supposed punchline of this gag was that they opened their suitcase and there were dollar bills flying out absolutely everywhere. You know, so there was considerable national rejoicing about it yes yeah definitely that, that there was a, and i what i felt you know i was I know, 14 13, 14 years old and growing up in the north of england was that they'd they were kind of people like us <laughs> and prior to that time stars were kind of um, they were american they were hollywood they were they had that kind of that patina that glow (laughs) that sort of unreal glow that elvis presley had Uh, whereas the beatles didn't look like that beatles sort of looked like people you saw in your local town i mean obviously they're slightly better than most people you know but but they kind of came from the same world that you came from so people did feel and I think this goes through the whole book, really. You know, if you look at what happened with the Stones and, and all these groups and so those, but I think one of the things that the success of all these bands in America had it did for us was there was a great national sense of validation as a consequence of it. That oh, we must be doing something right. Because <laughs> yeah. look, look how people adore us <laughs> in the shape of these people.
0: So, looking at the, the early part of the British invasion, I think there's a few really interesting kind of strands and stories that that come through in the book. And the thing that really stood out for me was this this story of the Dave Clark Five, <laughs> that of course were at one point the Tottenham Sound was the big rival to the Mersey Beat. Um, uh, which, looking back now, obviously sounds ridiculous, but they were unquestionably incredibly successful. What was the secret to their success why were they why were they successful when they looked nothing like a lot of the other british invasion groups they
1: were very successful for i suppose two reasons uh, one they arrived in uh, the united states immediately on the heels of the beatles where suddenly everybody wants we need more british groups we just need more of this stuff there must be more where they came from and they literally came you know They flew in as the Beatles were flying out and did Ed Sullivan the following week, pretty much like uh, the way the Beatles had done it. So there was timing on their side. The other thing is that they made some really good records, really good records, hilariously called the Tottenham Sound, even though they weren't recorded anywhere near Tottenham. They they were recorded in Holland Park. (laughs) I've, I've had that. They had a really good sound to them. And it was probably a sound that in many senses was more familiar to American sensibilities. They made a sound that was quite familiar to American ears. You know, it was, it was shades of Dwayne Eddy and people like that in them. You know, they had a saxophone. They were quite regimented. And I think they really appealed very strongly to boys. They, I always got the feeling with Dave Clark. That boys who wouldn't get on the dance floor to a kind of Rolling stones record would get on the dance floor to a Dave Clark record because it kind of sounded military. <laughs> you know, they would stomp their feet to glad all over and so forth. and they they were great they were great records Those Steve van Zandt says they were great nasty sounding records, and they were interestingly, Dave Clark five, the first indie act you could say. In that they, Dave Clark, managed the group himself and they made the records themselves and they licensed them to EMI or whoever wanted them. So for a couple of years and Dave Clark, they milked America like crazy. They put out like five albums in a year or something like that. They just kept twining out more and more and more product because they just wanted to milk it as much as they could. And they've made a lot of money and they will have kept a lot of money or Dave Clark will have kept a lot of money. Probably I wouldn't be surprised more than the Beatles during that period, but it wasn't to last. And I think Dave Clark is still eaten up by resentment (laughs) over the fact that his group are not taking them remotely as seriously as the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. Yeah, what do you put that down to? Well, they never got beyond those first two years. And also, they didn't have any charisma, Mm. I don't think. But, you know, not everybody can have that kind of level of charisma. But they made some great records.
0: Did they try and progress and and develop through the mid 60s or did it all just grind to a halt?
1: they kept going i mean they made a they made a movie catches if you can which is directed by john borman which is regarded as a pretty good movie Mm. but they kind of made it a bit late they were missing boats you know they they missed the psychedelic boats you know and they didn't really know what to do but come the end of the 60s it, it all fell apart but dave clark became a very successful entrepreneur producer theatrical producer, all kinds of things, and still owns his master's to this day, and also owns, as you no doubt aware, most of the footage for Ready, Steady, Go. So he's doing all right.
0: Well, that's good to hear. I'm relieved to hear that. Yeah, Let's talk about Hard Day's Night, which I wish you call, I think, quite beautifully in the book a recruiting film for a new way of life. The impact that this film had on US audiences was was huge. What do you think... It was about this film that completely—I mean, it—it it, it took the Beatles onto another level of fame, almost. Definitely, I think it's
1: hugely important because, well, prior to Hard Day's Night, you'd only seen them on the television, and your television in those days was quite a small thing, uh, you know, with, with a black and white picture, which wasn't terribly good quality. You know, so that was quite limited, and most people could go and see them live, and if you went to see them live, you couldn't hear them, or you couldn't get nearer to them, and so forth. You know, they, they would be playing on your local cinema stage, far distant, fairly inadequate entertainment experience, whereas suddenly you go, as I did, you know, I went to the Dewsbury Pioneer to see Hyde the Hard Day's Night and remember it clearly, and, and suddenly there they were, yay hi. You know, beautifully photographed. So when you saw them singing those songs, those fantastic songs, because, and it only struck me when I was writing this book, really, that Hard Day's Night, the album as we know it in this country, not the abomination that came out in the United States, is the first proper rock band record. It is just absolutely astonishing. Yeah, we're going to write, we're going to write, what is it, seven songs from the movie. And then on the other side, we're going to give you another six. And they'll be nearly as good. And those will all be written by John and Paul, not even George. It's an unbelievable piece of work. Still to this day, it's arguably my favourite Beatles record. But when you saw them doing these songs on the big screen, you know, If I Fell or... I should have known better in the in the railway carriage. That was the first time you'd seen the kind of the experience that we've came to know as the kind of pop video. They were miming clearly, you know, but it was it was a kind of combination of a performance and an advertisement. And what you saw, what came over in Hard Day's Night with the Beatles, that you can only see properly on a film was the fact that they loved each other hmm. and that they loved being with each other. And that was the moment before any kind of disillusion had set in. And I do think that one of the things I think about the Beatles, one of the things that I think is so amazing about those early records, one of the things you're responding to is their own delight at what's happened to them. That's what you can hear in those songs. That's why you get this magical leap between please, please me from me to you, which is kind of all right, to she loves you, I want to hold your hand. It's a different level, totally mm. different level. Mm. And a lot of that level is just their, their delight, their exuberance.
0: What? It's, it's
1: happening. Look at this. And here we are. And so you were sitting there, you, you know, you're sitting there in, in the Dewsbury Pioneer or whatever you're watching it in the United States and you were kind of sharing that. And, you know, in the States, they went to see the film and girls would run up to the screen to try and touch Paul or George or whatever, you know. So, so the film, and it came very, it came at the right time in their career, didn't it? You know, they, they turned it around really quickly. Hmm. And it was... I think the film was more the transformational experience for more people than Ed Sullivan or Beatlemania or whatever, because also you can go and see it a bunch of times. And so you got, you got the music, fantastic music, but you got also the, the humor and the sense of them behaving and being a group. And that whole, the whole idea of, of backstage and whoopee getting in the back of the van, and oh, the girls are screaming outside, and we'll be late for the gig, all that kind of stuff, which is still incredibly powerful today mm. in nine out of 10 rockumentaries. All comes from Hard Day's Night, and all comes from Hard Day's Night, which I think was pinched from the Maisel Brothers film, which they had made at the instigation of Granada Television. Of the Beatles actually arriving at JFK, so basically, Beatles arrive at JFK. Maisel Brothers follow them, catch a lot of this kind of banter and and the frantic atmosphere. Alan Owen and Dick Lester put that into a film, and then everybody sees it as entertainment. So you know, with the Beatles, you didn't. That's what was so stupid about help, actually, when you think about it, because. Nobody wanted to see the Beatles dressed up and acting daft. What everybody wanted to see was the Beatles just being the Beatles. That's one of the most powerful bit of help. Is the bit where they go in the um, in the four terraced houses, which all turned out to be one house. That's what we want
0: to see. I was going to ask you about Help actually. Was that something that you felt at the time? I'm not. I don't really enjoy this as much, or I just want to see them be in the Beatles.
1: Ah, well, where you? No, I was 15 or whatever, and therefore, if I had felt that, you wouldn't have admitted it to yourself anyway. (laughs) You know, you never do. No. Uh, But you know, I was never as inspired by Help as I was by Hard Day's Night. You know, if Help was on the telly now, I I might watch it, but. wouldn't bother me at all if I if I missed it. And I'd probably be a bit disillusioned if I looked at it because I'd probably be able to see how fed up that we're beginning to get. Yeah. Whereas you don't get that hard day's night. It's got an extraordinary spirit to it. And we are blessed. Again, it's the, the luck of the Beatles. is like nobody else on earth. They didn't make it in colour because they couldn't afford to. The reason we love it so much today is because it's not in colour. Absolutely.
0: Let's move on and talk a little bit about the Summer of Love, if that's not too glib a term. Tell us a little bit about how some of those British invasion groups cope with the Summer of Love. Um, Did they, how many of them maintained a success? How many of them, like the Day of Clark Five, kind of gave up? And the Beatles, obviously, we we must come back to the Beatles. They obviously certainly didn't um, suffer at all in, in the Summer of Love. What do you think was the key to their success? Well, the key to the
1: Beatles' success is is always the same thing. It's it's extraordinary records. Yeah. And also, they stopped not long afterwards. Don't forget this. And in 1966, 67, the Beatles' star was somewhat waning from some measures, you know, in terms of, you know, many people thought the monkeys were a bigger deal, which now seems ridiculous to even think that. But I, I think Brian Epstein probably thought that, you know. That's why Penny Lane's "Draw Strawberry were peeled off um, Sanja Pepper and put out as a single, because he thought it was important to do that. The big transition was, could you, as the, as the business moved from singles to albums, could you similarly move? And the Beatles clearly did, and the Rolling Stones kind of did, although, although their the satanic majesties is, um, is still kind of pretty risible. and and gives you an idea of just how kind of transfixed by the Beatles other people were. Hmm. But then there were other people who just couldn't make albums, you know. Tragically, people like The Animals. And The Animals, fantastic group. Absolutely fantastic group. Made brilliant singles, almost all of which were American songs supplied by American publishers, done better by a British group, just given some kind of edge that no American act could have given them. But they couldn't write songs for themselves, so they were always going to be a bit stuck when it came to making the transition into albums. And then you got the kind of second wave comes along. So people like The Who hadn't really figured very much in the mid-60s started to figure more 67 68 69 and a lot of that was just because the who did something that that the Beatles didn't really do and the Rolling Stones didn't really do in that in those days which just tore and tore and tour bigger and bigger venues and so the who made contact with a, a new emergent audience of kind of long hairs and students and people who. Who played the kind of electric ballrooms as Pete Townsend called it, and went to the college gigs? You know when the Beatles played. You know all all the Beatles' life of performing was sailors in Hamburg, typists in Liverpool, and screaming girls in cinemas. The end. The Beatles never never went on stage in front of a kind of Glastonbury audience or a student audience or a punk rock audience. Just. Never happened for them because they knocked on their head by that time. So some people adapted uh, and some people just had that kind of second wind and some people didn't. You know, I think the people who kind of lived and died by the hit single waned, really, as, as was only to be expected. And it's probably the case that the likes of The Who, The Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, prospered as they did, partly because the Beatles weren't there anymore. So it was a kind of a bit of a vacant crown, really. You know, they, there were some acts who were, who were looking towards a new world and some who weren't. And by the time that had opened up, the Beatles had stopped.
0: So you talk there about the movement from albums to singles. It, it, sorry, from singles to albums. It strikes me that the other movement that happened a bit later in the 60s Was this move from this idea that live became the thing, and Led Zeppelin, of course, are the 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 best incarnation of that. Suddenly, British success in America becomes down to as you as you just said, this live experience, something which, as you say, the Beatles weren't doing, and only really McCartney masters through the seventies. He's the only one that can have you know that that had any kind of live success in in the states what led to that change where live became the thing
1: well i suppose if you look if you're a sociologist you'd probably say it was the baby boomers leaving home you know you huge you know just follow follow the demographic bump right through that's how it works you know So uh, I've forgotten, I quote this in the book, I mean, you know, the the, the number of Americans who were under the age of 18 in the early 60s is just staggering, you know, because basically they all come home from the war, settled down, had children, you know, so basically then it's my generation. I was born in 1950. It's classic, you know. And then by the late 60s, all those people are off to university, smoking dope, doing what they like congregating in, in, in large numbers in far-flung cities, university halls, stadiums, arenas, you know, it starts moving up. You've got Woodstock and the Hyde Park concerts, where suddenly the idea of gathering with enormous numbers of people becomes a thing in itself and sort of attractive in itself. So that's where the market opens up. You know, these people need, need entertainment. These people need noise. These people need sensation. And you know, if you take people like Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, The Who, there's time to provide a different thing, you know. You know, if you listen to The Beatles, what are The Beatles providing? Beatles provide joy, okay? Mm. I'm sure you can say other things, but they definitely provide joy. The Rolling Stones provided music with dancing, and it was sexy. Led Zeppelin provided total sensation. Led Zeppelin were all to do with these things that I've got on my ears now, and you have, with your headphones, which are all about, let me just exclude the outside world totally and surrender to the biggest noise I can possibly find, even though many years to come are, you know, I'll of a whistling in my ears forever, you know, which everybody does. But that was what they were providing. It was subjugation by sound. And it was a very different thing, really. But British groups started to do it really well because they started to grasp the fact, and Led Zeppelin grasped this ahead of anybody else, that you were playing a bigger country where you had bigger venues, and therefore you had bigger crowds, therefore you needed to make a bigger noise. And they did make it incredibly big noise you know so these were the days of when you would turn up at gigs you go into the venue and there'd be towers of martial stacks you know going up in the air and you would go to the front young men would go to the front and count them you know i saw black sabbath they only had 20 these <laughs> people have got 40 you know it was like armaments we i think pete Townsend at the time said to Jim Marshall, who was the, you know, the man who built all this stuff, he said, We need bigger guns. That's what it was about, you know, and you can see that, you know, in the film of Woodstock. It's a different kind of entertainment. And that, that's what fueled that second great
0: boom, really. So the final boom comes in the 1980s, mm-hmm. where MTV is responsible for bringing back the. British invasion, I suppose you'd say, in that early part of the 80s. Something I think is really interesting about about the book is that you talk about Live Aid, uh, and you said that by the time you get to Live Aid, obviously the summer of 85, the two countries seem apart again. They seem you know, quite separate again. What led to that change?
1: You'd had the kind of MTV thing in the, in the, in the, in the early 80s which British groups had benefited from for the simple reason that we have Saturday morning kids' television in this country, or we did in those days. And therefore, every tin pot act had a video.
0: Hmm.
1: they were a cheap video, but it had a video. And when MTV launched in the United States, they didn't have enough videos. You know, there weren't enough videos of American acts. They didn't make them. Whereas in Britain, they had tons of them. You know, so you, you got all these acts, you know, Duran Duran and... And uh, a flock of seagulls, or whatever, were suddenly on in American living rooms. And at the same time, you get this um, the rise of kind of electronic pop music, which is tuneful and it's really good for dancing. So, Depeche Mode, Human League, all that. That's kind of that happens, but it doesn't happen for long, really. Very few of those acts. I mean, people like Depeche Mode are still at it to this day. But Depeche Mode really cleverly moved into the big stadium, big sensation type presentation. A lot of these other acts fell by the wayside. And what strikes me with Live Aid, which you've got a, obviously a London end and an American end, is that the stars who emerged from Live Aid in Britain were kind of the old ones. Paul McCartney, Queen, this kind of thing. And the stars that emerged from the American end were the new ones, which were Madonna, you know. And uh, solo acts again. The British acts were the kind of foundation of it in the UK. Boomtown Rats, Ultravox, all these people kind of fell away after that. They never really made it in the United States. And it's a simple economic fact that if you're a British act and you don't make it in the United States, you probably break up. Because it's very difficult to keep getting bigger and and bands rely on sort of getting bigger. You know, there's an expectation, not just a financial expectation. There's just general, there's a feeling, oh, we've been, you know, we've had a hit in the UK, we've had a hit in the US, we've had a big tour, now what? You've, you've got to be expanding somehow. And, uh, and loads of those groups just didn't. They didn't translate to America. I think because... Most of the time, they didn't really have the charm that the Beatles had. And they'll say they had a great tendency to go to America and tell America what it was doing wrong, which America never wants to hear. Mm. And I do think it's interesting that the only exception to that rule, really, that came out of Live Aid to make it in America were English-speaking but not English. who were U2. And U2 had the perfect package. You know, they had a kind of British sensibility in a lot of ways but they had the great saving grace of being Irish Americans are emotionally Irish you know they were embraced in a way that load of the load of the British acts were not anymore and round about that, that very year live age I remember going to see Bruce Springsteen he was touring Britain' his first major outdoor arena Stadium tour. Mm. And the people turning up in 10-gallon hats and stars and stripes bandanas. One of the things people like when we when we like Madonna or Bruce Springsteen or the late prince or whatever, what we're liking a lot of the time is America. Because what those acts are about is America. Whether they openly say it, as Bruce Springsteen did, actually. If you comb the catalogue of every single American act, you will find a song called American something, American dust, American heartbreak, American girl. And so Americans advertise America. British groups don't advertise Britain. I think that was the beginning of, beginning of a change. You know? But I think is a particularly interesting moment now hmm. after we've had you know 18 months of enforced separation you know we are two countries divided by common language mm. and that's true it will be interesting to see whether we ever get back or whether we easily get back to those days of regular traffic back and forth their acts coming here our acts going there absolutely all the time because that's the other thing is that american acts have discovered through the years that a good way to get to break America is come to Britain and be seen to break Britain first. Walker Brothers, Jimi Hendrix, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Blondie, all kinds of people have done that. Because Britain is a relatively small country where it's quite, you can get all the tastemakers in Britain in one room. And it, you know it can be decided whether you're going to make it or not. In America, you can't do that. The only way to break America is just keep battering away, battering away for years. does world work like that in Britain.
0: It's interesting because there aren't really many groups now. If you look at the big kind of current successes, it's Adele, Ed Sheeran, Taylor Swift, Sam Smith, some of which are British and have had success in America. Maybe we'll need to see the resurgence of the group before we can see this kind of cultural conversation again.
1: That's an interesting point. And, you know, if you were starting a group tomorrow, would you? <laughs> because most of the musicians I talk to, they wouldn't start a group. No. they just go in their bedroom with a synthesizer and a, and a mate who can sing or whatever, you know, the template is the Pet Shop Boys or Sparks or Erasure, all these kind of things. Uh, the template used to be the four-piece group is still a very strong it still has a really strong emotional pull to some people. Mm. But if, you, if all you were wanting to, to
0: be was successful, you wouldn't start one. Absolutely. Well, David, it's been great fun talking to you. The book is overpaid, oversexed, and over there. Um, thank you so much for your time and sharing your memories. A pleasure.